Today's text is in the book of Titus. We've been going through a sermon series through the book of Titus this summer, and we've used a good portion of young men in this church. Today we are going to hear from the last of the young men of our church, Andrew Smith. Maybe you don't know him. Is he here? Okay, good, you're still preaching. Phew. All right. Looks like a number of people are here to uh, support him. I want to get to know each and every one of you guys. Dad and Mom are here. Book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works uh, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. All right, so I just want to begin by thanking the leadership here at Grace Baptist Church for giving me this pretty awesome responsibility. I never would have thought that at the age of 27 I would be preaching my first sermon. So just want to thank them. It's a tremendous honor, and it's a great privilege. I also want to thank the friends and the family who drove all the way from the big city to come and hear me. It means a lot to me. So if you would... Open up your Bibles to Titus 3. That's where we're going to be camping out today. So as I began to prepare for this sermon and look for any common themes, I realized that the number seven kept on popping up. And so in just a minute, I'm going to be giving a recap from the first seven weeks of this series. And then I'm going to do my best to expound upon the first seven verses of Titus 3. So the first two verses in this section detail seven reminders to believers, and then the following verses can be broken up into seven marks of life without Christ, and then finally seven marks of life after Christ has saved a person. Now seven is a number that represents um, completion and perfection, And unfortunately, I just barely missed being the seventh child in my family. Um, Six always precedes seven. And so Autumn Hope got the the privilege of being the seventh. Um, But as the sixth child, it does make me glad that I can at least preach a sermon that has seven interwoven throughout it. So I will give you um, just a quick recap um, because this sermon is one of a whole bunch of sermons that have been going through the book of Titus. So the first week, Matt Gibson, um, who was just up here introducing me, uh, took us 
through the beginning of the first chapter, he introduced us to Paul, and he also introduced us to Titus. Um, So Titus was the recipient of this letter. Um, He told us about the relationship between doctrine and holy living, um, between faith and practice, and between um, God's sovereignty along with man's responsibility. Those are all themes that can be seen throughout this book. Um, The next week, Ed Tresker, uh, who was a visiting pastor, uh, began to go through the qualifications of an elder and especially focusing in on the negative attributes, so what an elder should not be. The third week, um, our own Logan Howard went through the characteristics of an elder as well, but he focused on the positive attributes, so the things that an elder should be. He drove home the point that a biblically qualified elder has a love for God that is motivated by He has a love for people that is motivated by a love for God. The following week, we had another visiting pastor, Matt Bedsick, um, finish up chapter 1, and he looked at the ungodly conduct, the unsound doctrine, and the unchanged hearts of false teachers. Um, The fifth week, our own Dick Russell led us through the beginning of chapter 2 and showed us what the older community of believers is supposed to look like, so what their marks are supposed to be. Um, And then two weeks ago, um, Matthias Kranz detailed what the younger community of Christians is supposed to look like. So he emphasized the importance of the gospel and how that gospel, once it has changed a heart, will produce a true disciple of Christ who also is a disciple maker and a very diligent worker. And then finally last week, um, Matt Bedsick's brother, Mitch, so also a visiting speaker, finished up chapter 2 by talking all about grace. Uh, He talked about how this grace, um, God's grace, is the way that the church lives in such a way that it adorns the doctrine of Christ. So here in chapter 3, we have Paul, um, who's writing to Titus about how the elect, or the Christians, are supposed to live life in the public sphere. So it is is, um, believers that he's addressing. So the majority of my um, sermon this morning is going to be talking to believers, but I have a very important thing to say to people who have not trusted in Christ yet for their salvation. So I want everybody to pay attention and and just try to track with me through this whole thing. So you'll notice at the top of the notes page in your bulletin that there are three letters. There's J-L-T followed by spaces. And um, before I tell you what those stand for, because I'd love for you to fill that in, um, I just want to give you a quick backstory. So a couple years ago, my parents started uh, playing this little game whenever they would go driving anywhere. And the game that they played, it's a really cute game, and I've since adopted it, is uh, whenever they were stopped at a stoplight or anywhere, because if you have a car in front of you, you also have a license plate in front of you, they would try to come up with a Christ-centered expression from that license plate. So just to give you an example, um, we could come across a license plate that had JDF4427. And they would puzzle over it for maybe a good seven seconds, and then one of them will blurt out, Jesus does forgive, or Jesus demonstrates faithfulness. And it's really cool. It's a way that you can kind of encourage yourself as you're driving um, and challenge yourself, too, to come up with these expressions. So the other day, 
Um, I mentioned that I do this too now. Um, I was driving with this car that had um, a license plate that began with the letters J, L, and T. And I thought for a minute, and uh, the expression, Jesus' love transforms, came to my mind. And I thought, gosh, that is a really good, um, just sum up sentence for what this sermon is going to be about. And so, I know that in your bulletin it says that I'm talking about the priorities of grace. That's the name of my sermon, but the title actually is Jesus' Love Transforms. It's going to be the recurrent theme throughout this message. So our passage today opens with seven reminders to Christians, um, and I'm going to call these reminders the seven ways that the world knows who we serve. So reminders are very important. Um, Without them, it's very easy to gloss over or completely forget important information. Um, The Reminders app that I have in my phone is definitely one of the most useful um, and used features that I I go to. Without it, I would definitely forget the sour cream at the grocery store or that I have to water plants at my parents' house when I'm house-sitting or pick up donuts from a coworker's locker. I had that as a reminder. I don't really know why, because I don't think I would have forgotten that one. But regardless, reminders come in all shapes and forms. There's the mundane ones, like the ones I just mentioned, all the way to the more serious and consequential ones, which are what we find here in this passage. So just to reiterate, these reminders are for how believers are supposed to conduct themselves in the public sphere. So the first one out of the gate is that Christians are to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. And then the second reminder is about how we are to be obedient, and I'm going to tackle both of these together because they are similar concepts. They're not the same, but they do have similarities. So John Piper, who's a theologian and a pastor that I um, go to pretty often, helps to break down the difference between submission and obedience. And he said, submission has more of a narrow definition. It means to make room for or yield to, whereas obedience is somewhat broad in definition. It means to be persuaded by, to trust, or to rely on. Now, submitting to rulers and authorities was a recurrent issue for the Cretans. The Cretans are the people in this book who Titus was ministering among. Um, They hated the oppressive yoke of the Romans. Uh, the, The Romans were the rulers of that day, and they desired to be free from it. Indeed, this is very much an issue for us Christians um, today in the United States. We don't like to have someone ruling over us. Um, This harkens right back to the fall when Adam and Eve thought they knew what was best for themselves and they threw off the rule of God. Problems always follow a lack of submission and obedience. They always follow a lack of submission and obedience. So before I get into this more fully, I just want to establish who the primary authority figure is in the life of the believer. So first and foremost, we submit to God, who has all power, and in turn, we submit to those that govern over us since God has instituted them. Um, I'm going to read Romans 13.1, which has become quite a flashpoint in the past year, Um, but it's a great verse to get right to the heart of this issue. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the only time that the believer is warranted in not yielding to or submitting 
or not relying upon obeying our earthly authorities is when their commands go in clear and direct opposition to what God says. A good biblical example of one who submitted to and obeyed earthly authority but not at the expense of his submission and obedience to God is found in the life of Daniel. So Daniel was a prophet. Um, He lived before the time of Jesus. And you can read all about him in the Old Testament. Um, When he was a teenager, he was summoned by King Nebuchadnezzar um, to work in the king's court. So he was taken from his family's home, and um, he had to just go and learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, which was totally novel to him. But he did. He submitted, and he obeyed, and he went up, and he did this. Um, He was given great wisdom and discernment as he worked for King Nebuchadnezzar. But you'll notice that his submitting to, or his yielding, and his obeying, his relying upon, King Nebuchadnezzar never superseded his submission and his obedience to God. The most notable example of this um, comes later in the book of Daniel, when Daniel refused to adhere to a new law from the king, which forbade him from praying to God. He would sooner face a den of lions, and he ended up facing this den of lions, i.e. death was likely, before neglecting to submit to and obey the one true God. So this submission and this obedience to earthly rulers from national leaders all the way down to our bosses at work is something to strive for and a characteristic that will be shaped and molded by the Holy Spirit as we continue to rely upon him. It's inevitable that the Christian will stand out when obedience and submission are hallmarks of our interactions with the world around us. So I have a little story for this. Um, Recently at work, there was something that was minorly inconvenient to me and to my coworkers for me to keep on doing. But I did continue to do it because my boss continued to say, "I I want it done this way. And there was one coworker in particular who really took issue to this. And she would pull me aside all the time and say, like, why can you not do this? It just to be more convenient for me and for everybody. And I would say, no, like, I, I'm not going to do it because I was, I was told not to by, by our boss. And eventually she got so flustered that she just said, Andrew, be bad. And I said, no, I can't. I'm sorry. Um, and so submission and obedience in the public eye is going to make you stand out, but it will pay dividends for sure. Um, It's going to pay dividends because God sees, and to be under the approving eye of Almighty God is the right place to be. So the next reminder is to be ready for every good work. Like, really ready. Jumping at the opportunity to bless others. The image that comes to mind for being really ready for for something is um, my parents' German shepherd, Shotzi. So... She has a ton of really disfigured toys that she loves you to throw to her, and then she goes and does the old fetch thing. And um, when, when I'm poised to throw this to her, she is so ready. Like You can see it written all over her face that she is so ready to go and get this thing. And we are supposed to have the same readiness and be all about outdoing one another and showing honor and showing love to those around us. Hear what Paul has to say in Romans 12, verses 9 through 11. So in this passage, he's writing about the true marks of a Christian. So starting in verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So notice how Paul is talking to the believer here. He knows the natural inclination of man, which is to be slothful, and so he exhorts the elect to be fervent in spirit. And secondly, he says to outdo one another in showing honor. If that's your mentality as a believer, then you are on the right track, and the spirit of Christ is evident within you. We are to be anticipating the next way and the next time that we can demonstrate God's love to those around us. So following on the heels of this reminder is to speak evil of no one. Have you ever tried to implement this in day-to-day life? It's uh, rather difficult. It starts with the thought life. Um, I want to just quickly go through a couple more uh, texts here. So remember how Jesus says in Luke 6.45 that out of the abundance of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. And then in Philippians 4.8, Paul exhorts believers that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If this verse were taken more seriously, how much anger and bitterness could be avoided? Yet bridling the tongue is no easy task. It's not. Just as with the previous reminders, if this one is taken seriously though, it will have huge implications. On several occasions, my dad has told me about how remarkable it can be to say something good, something uplifting about someone else who is being derided by someone. When you pivot that conversation from degrading someone else to mentioning their good qualities, you will probably quiet the person who's doing the degrading. You might even get them to change their deriding tune because graciousness is catchy. But even if they don't join you in building up the other person, you will give them pause to think about what they're saying. Gracious speech is radically different and radically beautiful. Gracious speech is radically different and radically beautiful. The fifth reminder that we're given is to avoid quarreling. Unnecessarily arguing or bickering, picking a fight just to pick a fight is not only annoying, but it's detrimental to the spiritual well-being of those who are carelessly speaking. It makes me think of 2 Timothy 2, verse 16, where where Paul says to avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. We will one day stand before the throne of God and have to give account for everything that we have spoken. So bear that in mind next time you feel yourself drawn into an argument. You know that feeling, a little bit hot under the collar, the voice rising, uh, the fingers starting to point. There's a shirt out there that gets right to the bottom of this, and it says, I'm not arguing, I'm just proving why I'm right. That's just what quarreling is at its root. It's self-centeredness and it's pettiness. And in moments when bickering seems so attractive, just tell yourself to step aside. Everything is not about you. Rather, remember that we are pointing others, those in the public sphere, to who we serve, with a capital W, to Jesus. Take words captive before they escape your lips and don't say things without thinking them through. The sixth reminder is to be gentle. What a comely attribute this one is. One way to understand something can be to look at the opposite of what that thing is. So the opposite of gentleness is brashness. 
It is the tendency to not listen, but rather interrupt people. It's a quick temper and brutality. Those are the marks of someone who is not gentle. If a believer acts that way towards those in the public sphere, he dashes all possibilities of being a good witness for Christ, because this is not who Christ is. Remember, all of our interactions either point to Christ or away from him. The best way to understand gentleness is to look at the author of gentleness, Jesus. We have his words in Matthew 11:29, where he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is our king, and we are to follow in his example. The final reminder, number seven, is to be courteous or gracious. The end of verse 2 doesn't just say to be courteous, but it says to show perfect courtesy. It's not just being courteous to those that we like, or those who are reasonable, or those who respect us. Paul says here to show perfect courtesy to all people. This, like the other reminders, is a very tall order. Be gracious even to those who don't jive with you. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And how can we, or the Cretans in their day, be that aroma to those who are perishing unless we are gracious to our neighbor or our boss or our city representative? This seemingly impossible reminder reminds me of another verse in Matthew 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, as well as 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, where it says, But as he, Jesus, who called you, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So yes, these reminders are all very tall orders, and they're impossible to do in and of ourselves. But thanks be to God that he has made a way for us to do this. It's all through his spirit who dwells within us. He works that holiness, that graciousness, that gentleness, that peaceable nature, those lips that are free from speaking evil, that readiness for every good work, that obedience and that submission in us. It really is all a work of him. Left to our own devices, we never could. But God has made a way. And turning from our own way, And accepting the work that Jesus has done on our behalf opens the door to incredible realities, like the seven that I just mentioned to you. Remember, Jesus' love transforms every aspect of the believer. So in conclusion to this section, there's three sections here. There are two questions that I think we should consider. One, why is it crucially important that we live in the manner described in these two verses? And the answer to that is that in doing so, we will glorify our Savior, Jesus, and thus be a shining testimony to those in the public square. The other question is this, how can we live in this manner? And I've already touched on this a couple times, but it's through the miraculous, affection-changing work of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that we can live um, in the ways that have been just described. I'm going to talk more about the Holy Spirit later on in this sermon. But the bottom line is that we cannot bring any of this about by our own strength. It's only through Christ in us that any of these reminders from Paul can be lived out. Jesus' love transforms. It's not us. We are not the point. It's his love working in and through us that will save and change lives. 
So my next section is the seven horrible realities of life without Christ. So verse 3 details the characteristics of a person who has not been changed by Jesus. And you will see that these realities are pretty ugly and grotesque to behold. Every sinner who doesn't turn to Christ and receive the free gift of salvation is described in these next seven points. And every sinner, I want to say this as well, has a before and an after story. So not any one of us is exempt from recognizing that these realities are a place where we once dwelt for far too long. And just to be clear, no believer in Jesus, regardless of how long they've been walking with him, is perfect. We all still stumble. But these realities are no longer the mark of our lives. The old man, our flesh, still has to be put to death minute by minute each day until the day we die. But Christ within us, the hope of glory, he will continue to transform us into his likeness every day that we walk with him. So I've put these seven marks of an unbeliever in alphabetical order for all of the note takers out there. The first one is absence of wisdom. So Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. True wisdom and true knowledge come from fearing the Lord. And since this is what the unbeliever despises, they walk in total foolishness. And listen to 1 Corinthians 3.19 and 20. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise and their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The wisdom, quote-unquote, of this world is futile. There is no hope for wisdom outside of Jesus. The second mark of an unbeliever is that they are bowed down in waywardness. This is a fancy way of talking about disobedience, but I think that it drives home the point just a bit more. To be wayward is to be disobedient or rebellious or headstrong doing everything your own way. And I believe that the disobedience that Paul mentions here is a continual disobedience. It's unlike the disobedience that still is present in the life of the believer. And the mark of that is that it's continual. (coughs) The non-believer is, if you will, stooping under or bowed down under the weight of his continual disobedience since he hasn't given this disobedience, this burden, to Christ. Bowed down in waywardness is not where you want to remain. There is a better way, and I'm going to tell you about that better way uh, later on in this message. Number three, an unbeliever is continually deceived. There are so many things that deceive people. We are deceived by other people. We're deceived by the devil and his demons. And we are deceived especially by our own hearts all the time. Being led astray or living in deception is a scary place to be. And if we are not anchored or tethered to something outside of ourselves, it's inevitable that we are going to go down a path. Whether that is the path to life or the path to hell is the question. There is no middle ground, though, and those who are operating according to the world system will be led astray. Note that in order to be led, you have to be a follower. And following your own hearts, which are influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil, will lead one down the wide way to destruction. These are pretty sober words. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Deceitful above all things. 
You do not want to live life in this deception. Number four, an unbeliever is driven by worldly desires. Some of the predominantly worldly desires are outlined for us in Colossians 3, 5, so I'm just going to read them quickly. Um, Paul says, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And to broaden this out, 1 John 2:16 talks about what is in and of the world, namely the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The text says slaves to various passions and pleasures. Again, to allude to what I said earlier about being led astray, your heart will either pursue worldly desires or Christ. There's no, there's no other option. We can either be slaves to unrighteousness or we can be slaves to righteousness. That's Romans 6.16. Number five, envious and spiteful. These two go hand in hand. To be envious is to desire something that is not your own, and the way that this envy works out is in spiteful thoughts, words, and actions. A friend of mine was recently discussing with me what envy and spite or malice actually means, and he drove home a good point about these two vices. Envy and spite do not occur in a vacuum. When envy festers, and notice how verse 3 says, passing our days in envy and spite, i.e. living in it, letting it grow, this envy manifests itself to other people through spiteful or bitter words and actions. But again, it's not in a vacuum. Other people will be affected by your envy. Sin loves company. And when we spend our days in an envious and embittered manner, we can be sure that others will be brought down as a result. Number six, friendless. Taken together, all of the above characteristics produce the type of person that no one wants to be around. Note that the text says, hated by others. The word hate, just like the word fool, is a strong word that shouldn't be glossed over. In fact, hate was one of those no-no words in my house or my parents' house growing up. And uh, if we said it, we would either get a mouthful of soap or have to run around the five-acre lot, which took a minute. So we found ways around it by saying things I can't stand or strongly dislike. But the text here goes the extra distance and makes it clear that there is no sweet savor in the unbeliever. There's no sweet taste in the unbeliever. Sure, there can be a facade that appears pleasant on the outside, but the inner man is rotten, and the sin and self-absorption of that man who is spiritually dead will, in the end, repel others away. And lastly, number seven, given over to hatred. Given over to hatred. This mark of a non-believer is also easy to understand given the previous points that have been made. When the natural man, the unrepentant sinner, is hated by others and envious and spiteful and consumed by worldly desires and deceived and disobedient and foolish, it simply follows that he himself will be given over to hatred. Sin is an awful thing, and it has destroyed man right down to his core. There is no way to change our hopeless situation in and of ourselves. There is no way. No amount of worked-up self-control or fake smiles or transactional kindness or blood from bulls and goats can ultimately fix the devastation that was initiated when Adam and Eve chose their way over God's way. But there is a way forward. It's a glorious way forward, and it doesn't come from anything that we have done. 
One of my favorite quotes from Matt Chandler, who's another pastor that I will listen to on occasion, is that truth is not fluid and inside of us. Rather, it's fixed and outside of us. And that truth is found in Jesus Christ. His work is glorious. And now I'm just going to look at the last part of this sermon, which is the seven glorious realities of the believer's rescue from the world. So, verses 4 through 7 are the capstone to me of this passage. In them we find the reason why we are able to carry out everything that Paul reminded Titus of in the first two verses. Notice that Paul spent four verses to describe the saving work of Christ in contrast to just the one verse to describe our previous condition. I don't think that's by accident. Our attention should be trained on Jesus and how his love transforms. This salvation that will be described in this final section is all a work of him. These glorious realities are all things that the believer or the Christian obtains from Christ's work on the cross. All seven of my points have to do with what we receive. First, we are the recipients of his goodness. Now, what do I mean by goodness? What is it? Um, To put it simply, his goodness is who he is. It's his nature. And it's something that is singularly his. No one else holds this. In Mark 10:18, Jesus says that no one is good except God alone. No one. It doesn't matter how charitable or how benevolent or caring you are. We all have sinned and therefore we are not good. We are the opposite of good. We are sinful. And his unique singular goodness is manifested in his kindness, which is my next point. So the second reality of this glorious rescue is that the believer or the elect is the recipient of his loving kindness. Goodness and kindness are related in the following way. God's kindness is an outworking of his goodness. Because he is essentially good, he is kind, but not just generally kind. He is filled with loving kindness, which is the word hesed, in the Hebrew. Oh, how beautiful a thing is this loving kindness. God was by no means obligated to save us. We were created for his glory, and it is in his kindness, in his loving kindness, that he has made a way for us. It's through his son Jesus. This brings me to my next point. The third point is that we are the recipients of his saving work. Note what it says in the text, the first three words of verse 5. He saved us. This indicates that we needed to be saved from something. So what did we need saving from? We needed to be saved from our sins. Even the most harmless sin that you can think of that you have committed is an affront to a perfectly holy God. And without accepting the death of Jesus on your behalf, that sin would condemn you to hell for eternity. One of my favorite pastors, I've already alluded to him once in this sermon, John Piper, has said the following regarding sin. It always overpromises and underdelivers. Therefore, the problem that we find is that we need someone who is holy, as God is holy, to take our sins upon himself and defeat that sin, which would condemn us both to the grave and beyond the grave. And thanks be to God, he does have a plan. He had a plan. It was a plan that was hatched before the ages began. And it involves his son Jesus coming to earth and living a perfect, sinless life and then dying a brutal death on a cross. 
But three days later, that tomb that he was laid in could not contain him anymore, and he burst forth. He completely destroyed the power of sin. He completely destroyed the power of hell, and he completely destroyed the power of death. Thus, he, Jesus, has made a way for us sinners to be reunited with him for eternity. He pursues and we respond. He pursues and we respond. He has conceived the plan. He has carried it out and he has completed it. He's the author and the finisher of our salvation. Because all of salvation is God's idea, and indeed he provides us with the faith to believe in the work, it becomes clear that all of salvation is a gift from the giver, capital G, of all good. And here's where I want to say something that I hope everybody in the room hears, and that is today is the day of salvation. It's not too late for anyone to turn from their sins and follow Christ. Remember, sin always overpromises and underdelivers, and it will lead you to utter and complete ruin. Run from your sin towards Jesus. Run to the cross where your sin has been paid for and dealt with in full. He is a good Savior who will cast no one out. John 6:37, Jesus says, All that the Father or God gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So turn to Jesus. Turn to him. This brings me to my fourth point, the recipients of the new birth. We as Christians are recipients of a new birth. This is referred to as the washing of regeneration in verse 5, which is just a fancy way of talking about being born again. The word regeneration should evoke images in your mind of new life, images of life being given to something that has been lifeless. That is precisely what happens when one receives Christ. That man or that woman is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It is the ultimate and the best transfer that there is. Fifth, we are the recipients of the Holy Spirit. After initially becoming a child of God, the road is not easy, but God has supplied a helper to the believer. This helper is not some nebulous energy out there just floating around, but he's the third member of the Trinity. It's God the Father, and God the Son, Jesus, and then God the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 specifically talks about the renewal that the Holy Spirit brings. When a man is foolish and disobedient, deceived, driven by worldly desires, envious and spiteful, hated by others and hating others, he must be renewed in his mind. And that mighty work is undertaken by the Holy Spirit. He renews in the following ways. I'll give three. A, he gives peace and strength to those who set their mind upon him. That's Romans 8.6. B, he changes our desires and gives us hope. That's found in Romans 8.23. And then C, he intercedes for us when we don't have the words to pray. Romans 8.26. He actually prays to the Father on our behalf when we don't have the words to pray. It's an incredible reality. The Holy Spirit is a counselor that is not to be ignored. He's a helper that is not to be shunned. He's a source of power that is not to be disregarded. And he's an interceder that's not to be forgotten. Number six. We're getting through this. We are the recipients of lavish grace. This, too, is wonderful news. The story from salvation all the way to glorification, when we pass from this life into the next, 
is one that's marked by Jesus' grace displayed to us. Once one has begun to follow Christ, affections and desires begin to change, but the Christian won't be perfected until eternity. Stumbling still happens. It's not the hallmark of life anymore, but it still does happen, and God's grace is very much evident in his forgiveness to us when we do sin. His grace takes on various forms. Sometimes it is through the provision of what we've been hoping for and praying for, and sometimes it's through the withholding of what we ask him for. So sometimes he does grant us the desires that we ask him for, and sometimes he withholds. And both are of his grace. He has the advantage of seeing everything past, present, and future in our lives, which is something that we, limited by time, cannot see. So trusting that he knows best for us is key to developing a mature walk with the Lord. Now I have a poem to share. It's a quick poem um, that helps to show how his grace can sometimes take unexpected forms. It's called The Mendicant, and mendicant is a, uh, a word that means beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift, which thou hast given me. He said, My child, I give good gifts, and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. It's written by uh, Martha Snell Nicholson. So the prize is Jesus, and grace points to Jesus. This is, if this is what a thorn or a difficulty in life exposes, is more of Jesus, then it's worth it. It's so worth it. Finally, number seven, we are the recipients of the eternal reward. Adopted sons of God become heirs of all he has, which is a really staggering reality. And what is this eternal reward? Listen to how 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4 talks about it. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Did you hear those words? This hope of eternal life that's talked about in Titus 3.7 is imperishable. It never can and never will be destroyed. It's undefiled. It's completely pure and perfect. And it's unfading. It's never going to dim. We never will tire of this eternal life. Because at its core, what is this that we are going to be inheriting in eternity? It's the unbounded presence of Jesus. An awesome line from a song that we actually already sang today um, goes like this. We shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. And I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Transfixed is one of my favorite words. If you're transfixed by something, it has captured or completely holds your attention or your interest. And the eternal reward of being in Jesus' presence forever is such a glorious prospect. So in conclusion, we've seen 
Seven reminders that Paul has given to believers regarding how they're supposed to demonstrate Christ in the public square. Remember, these were given to believers, and none of these marks of a Christian are what save us. Salvation is only found in Jesus' blood. These reminders to submit to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people are ways that the world knows that we serve Jesus. They point to him. So I have two points of application. This will be brief. My first point is to the Christians here, and it is this. Live your life in a way that glorifies Christ. It's a simple enough sentence, but but difficult to actually live out. You want to make sure that those seven reminders are seven marks of how you operate in the public square. You want to live your life in a way that glorifies Christ. So I'm just going to give you one last story before I close. Um, It comes from my work. So I work up in Rochester at um, Strong Memorial Hospital in their cancer center, the infusion center, so it's where the patients receive their chemotherapy. And one of the coolest aspects of this job is that I'm able to develop friendships, um, though they are transient with these patients because they come through over a a certain amount of time um, to receive these treatments. Sometimes they're there for years and sometimes it's quicker. Um, There's this one patient who I've gotten to know um, over the last couple months and he came in on Friday. And um, so my job at the hospital, I'm a tech, is to vital the patients and then I take them back to receive the chemotherapy. So I have probably two to three minutes with each patient. Uh, We have to kind of go quickly since there's a lot of patients to get through. Every now and again, I am able to capitalize on these interactions. So Friday I said to this gentleman, how are you doing? And he said, Oh, I'm doing pretty awful, actually. I just got a very difficult prognosis from my physician. And um, over the course of the two minutes that we had together, I told him I'd be praying for him. I said that twice. And both times that I said that, he broke down in tears. And even though the cancer center is a place where there's tremendous suffering, I don't see tears very often. So it always catches me a little bit off guard when I see a patient crying. And I'd never seen this patient cry before. So he goes back, receives his treatment, and then 30 minutes or an hour later, I um, was caught by him in the hallway as he was leaving, and he said, thanks again for your words, for your prayers. And I said, absolutely. And I told him a little bit more about the hope that I have in Jesus, which I wanted him to have as well. And when I told him about that, he again burst into tears, and this time he grabbed me to give me a hug. And I'd never been given a hug before in the infusion center. It's kind of against COVID protocols right now, um, but I gave him a hug. And the reason why I tell you this story is because people in the world are hungry for hope. They're hungry for the hope that comes through Jesus, because he is, he is the one true hope. So it doesn't matter what your occupation is. You could be at the front end of the grocery store You could be a plumber. You could be holding down an engineering job. You could be a person working in interventional radiology. You could be a lineman. You could be a laser designer. You could be an oncology nurse or a PA working in GI. It doesn't matter what your field is. What matters is that you are living your life in a way that others see Jesus. 
because our, our goal is to tell other people about how he transforms lives, just like how he's transformed mine, how he's transformed yours. My last point is very simple. It's just two words, and it's to everybody here. It is seek him. You don't want to have those seven marks of an unbeliever be what characterizes you. Remember, today is the day of salvation. So seek Jesus out. He will be found. That's a promise straight from God. The Lord says in Jeremiah 29:13, "You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart." So seek him out. He will be found and he will transform your life.